And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. And what I assume, again, is warm weather in Perth and something between sunshine, rain, snow, and wind here in Chicago. <laughs> well, we had a brief sort of pause in the excoriation of the populace uh, last week. It was a little bit cooler, but it's going to warm up today and then get warmer again tomorrow. But Excellent. we officially, I think, had the last day of summer last week. So we're nominally in fall, but it is very nominally here. I mean, I think it's kind of like going to be 90 degrees or something tomorrow. But you don't have anything at all resembling what we in the north would call winter. No, no, no. We've probably got a fall day. It would be the the, uh, depth of our winter. It'll get uh, sort of, well, in centigrade, you might get down to about 12 degrees centigrade during the day. And it could get down very rarely to zero here, but very rarely. It's usually in the sort of two, three, four degrees is, is a cold night. It never rains, uh, sorry, it never snows in Perth, and it does <coughs> occasionally uh, rain. In the city of 1.7 million people, Gary, exploding Huge population. City. Huge city. And you, you can answer a question. This is so yeah. science fictional we're talking about. A question that was written to the weather caster in the Chicago Tribune. Somebody wrote to the Chicago Tribune saying, do they have... Southern lights to go with the northern lights, because uh, <laughs> apparently, apparently in northern Minnesota at certain times of the year you can see northern lights. And the the, the weathercaster wrote back that uh, yes, there are, but mostly they're visible from Antarctica, except you can see them from Tasmania every once in a while. Okay, I don't. And I wondered that. if yeah. you've never seen them in Perth. Oh Lord, no, no, I've never seen them. Okay. I would love to. Um, uh, and it makes sense. I, I, mean, I, was, I was going to sort of sound all, all knowledgeableishness and and. Through the reason why it sounds reasonable that there would be southern lights. I mean, if you think about what the northern lights are, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also makes sense that there's not, not much land mass around there to see them. Whereas, in you know, for it to come this far north would mm-hmm. be pretty unusual. You'd have to think so. Well, I mean, it's unusual. So they'd be called the Aurora Australis or something like that, I suppose. I'm going to be honest and say I have no idea. Probably we will. Okay. Go say we'll find uh, out, then we'll never do it again. <laughs> okay, well, exactly, fine. All right, so what do we got to talk about tonight? Well, I was going to say, for a second, I now know what we should do for the 100th episode, Gary. We, we should, should go back that. through the other 91 episodes of this podcast, find all the questions that we said we were going to answer, and answer them. <laughs> we did have one suggestion or two for a uh, 100th episode, so at some point, we should go over the suggestions that we've received yeah. from listeners. Yes, yes. I think we should. But um, I was thinking about talking about terms. Because I love that. If we talk about terms, then we're not going to be talking about awards, and that's got to be a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. Science fiction, through its life, has enjoyed a lot of academic, critical, fan discussion about uh, you know about itself. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's been very, probably one of the more, I would imagine, energetic, self-analyzing genres and fans mm-hmm. have been very quick to make up terms for this and that and what, whatever authors obviously play, played a great part in it I mean from coining science fiction through to coining space opera onto whatever and there was a curiosity and it was brought up to me by uh, it was brought up this week in the context of a review written by our friend Michael Deirdre uh, about Keith Roberts spectacularly wonderful book Pavan <coughs> mm-hmm. where he, he refers to it being uh, a fix-up novel. Now, as you'll remember, Gary, because I heard you, this is a term coined by Van Vogt, I believe, eh, Van Vogt. Yes. To cover uh, his practice 
which was not un- not uncommon in the, the day, of taking strings of related or semi-related stories that that had largely been published in the magazines in the 40s, I seem to recall, and then braiding them into novels, fixing them up vir- to novels. Yeah, it was it was virtually the only choice uh, writers of Van Vogt's generation had because, as we were talking about a little bit last week with the 50s, there was no book market. There was no market for sure. writing a novel. So if Van Vogt wants to write... Oh, for example, the voyage of the space beagle. Yep. He's got to cobble it together from stories. Yes, and also I guess that thing where you feel well, you've done a certain amount of work, so there's nothing stopping you. I mean, uh, with mm. say the weapon shops of Isher, you know, a goodly chunk of that had been written for astounding and thrilling wonder already. So right. there, was, there was no reason why he couldn't or shouldn't. And also, I mean, you get something like I guess even something like um, Orphans of the Sky, you know, the Heinlein book. Which mm-hmm. has universe in it, which was written sometime earlier, uh, and was eventually kind of fixed up into a novel. But I think you, know, you, you get this question about when is a fix up a fix up, and when is a fix up the right term? So, I mean, some mm. people would get, become offended by it. You know, uh, would a book, for example, for example, to bounce around, like Michael Swanwick's The Dragons of whatever it was, Babel. Babel. Yeah. Which, which basically was comprised entirely of previously published pieces, would that be a fix-up? Okay, that's um, oh, this is a good question, I think. Um, first of all, I, the, the, the term fix-up came in for some considerable discussion after the Clued uh, uh, and Grand Encyclopedia ad- adapted it yeah. uh, took, uh, and, and, and used it uh, as a bibliographical description of a certain kind of story. Yes. And then I know a, a number of living writers, uh, James Gunn among them, really took exception to that term mm-hmm. because it sounds like patchwork. It sounds like, uh, oh, you're just nailing together previously published stories. Sure. Uh, which, yeah, it's, it's true. Sometimes that's true. I think what confuses the matter when you get to something like Swanwick is that you very well may have a writer who is, um, actually, Paul McCauley's uh, Quiet War stories could fit into this as well. Mm-hmm. You very well may have a writer who's conceiving of a novel, but in order to sort of generate interest, maximize it, is going to publish the novel piecemeal. Mm-hmm. So here's my question. Does a fix-up consist only of stories that were written and published as stories and later knitted together, or does it include a novel which may have been excerpted repeatedly prior to its novel publication? I think that's a, an actual crux, a key, a key consideration. I think that... It only should apply to works where previously published stories have been adapted into a longer work, possibly where you're even clear that they weren't originally intended to be. You know, That's where you actually have mine. fixed up or pasted up. You know, um, I think Budras referred to um, City by Cliff Simak as, as a paste mm-hmm. up. You know, we're, we're bringing together stories from separate issues of Astounding and Fantastic Adventures and whatever else. Um, the, the Swanwick bears some similarity to, to this in the sense that it has these stories that are not... If, if, if you read it through as a novel, it's, it means an episodic novel at best, really. Right, it is. Uh, so it does read like a series of contiguous pieces. Um, I, I guess, and this is something sort of to think about here, and I'll be interested to know what anybody else thinks... You get okay. You get a book like Pavan, right? Pavan is a series of pieces. Mm-hmm. They're thematically linked. They don't have the same characters in them, but they're the th- thematic movement through the story. And there's all that whole the whole stately Pavan kind of a thing. Yes, it is. To call that a fix-up 
suggests that it's cobbled together. And I don't know Roberts's intentions. I've not read interviews with him on the subject, if he gave any. But I'll bet that he didn't feel he was stitching something together. I suspect he felt he was composing something which evolved. Yeah, uh, something, he, more yeah. Like, yeah, something more like Le Guin's story suite. I think that may have very well been the case, where he may have had a novel in mind all along mm. and was trying out different ways of doing it. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. And I think yeah. that happens... Um, I mean, it, it happens, I'm sure, in mainstream fiction as well as uh, as in um, as in science fiction and fantasy. I, th- I, I guess, and one of the things you cannot determine from bibliographical detective work is what an author's intention was. Well, well, you uh, can't. I mean, sometimes the, the actual history of it um, gives you a clue, and sometimes, you, I mean, the author goes on record. I mean, the, the, the probably the, the conversation that came to mind or the, the, that spurred it. Uh, was a comment that uh, John Kessel made about his book Good News from Outer Space, which mm-hmm. you may recall from I think it was the mid 1980s. Yeah. Uh, now, apparently, he deliberately used the structure of Melville's The Confidence Man uh, for for the book, and he realized that whilst the book was a, a long narrative, that some of the chapters might work as a standalone stories. So what he did mm-hmm. was is he basically wrote the book, then he took the chapters out and re- rewrote them. Uh, three of the pieces of stories, uh, Credibility, Judgment Call, and Mrs. Trimble Exits a Winner. And because those three stories came out separately, the book's been looked at as being a fix-up, when in fact it was always a novel. It was a, That's what I mean about taking bits out of a novel, publishing them separately, mm-hmm. sometimes taking excised pieces out of a novel. Sure. I, think, I think Peter Straub, our friend Peter, got a, yep. if I'm not mistaken, won a World Fantasy Award for The Ghost Village, which was essentially excised from Coco, although a version of it remains in Coco. But it was a case of, here's a long, powerful yeah. passage from the novel which stands alone, and why don't I just publish it separately? Well, well, the other yeah. exa- well yes, another example would be uh, our friend Jack Dan, his memory cathedral. Yes. He won the Nebula, mm-hmm. I think it was, for an excerpt from that. Uh, he, he took a story, Da Vinci Rising, which is a portion mm-hmm. of the book, and deliberately adapted it to be a standalone story. And in fact, if you were to look through his bibliography, pretty much whenever there's a novel, he's had a piece or two or three that he's worked out that he can reuse. Uh, that would that is not a fix-up and shouldn't be. And I've never heard that, that particular book called a fix-up, but wouldn't be. Um, I think uh, Kessel also referred to oh what was it? I mean, Delillo's Under, Underworld. The prologue appeared early, you know, earlier as a novella. But, was mm-hmm. a, but, but not a fix-up. The, the thing I think that makes it interesting as well, and this is perhaps this talk, does talk to how the, history, the field evolved, exactly as you t- touched on, how we had the magazine era, how we went on mm-hmm. to book publishing, and da 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 da. And that is uh, the whole concept of the short story collection, in some sense, is so key to the field. Whether they be fix-ups, whether they be story suites, whether they be something else, and this actually ties into another conversation you and I had mm-hmm. off. Uh, microphone, which probably isn't now inappropriate, uh, where we had been talking about your 50s project. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd thrown up the idea to you at one point that wouldn't it be cool if you could do um, a, antholo- a collection, an omnibus, of the great short story collections, the great fix-ups um, in, in the history of the field? No, I agreed with that completely, and it, it, it created, you know, in terms of trying to do something decade by decade, it creates an interesting problem, because 
Um, I mean, one of the things I'm sure I'm going to hear from from people complaining about, well, we're in the 1950s. Why aren't we doing Foundation? Why aren't we doing Clifford Simak's sure. City? Why aren't we doing Zena Henderson's Pilgrimage? And the fact is that all those were short stories published during the 40s. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I, I remember talking to I, I, was, I was talking to Aldous Budras about this, who started his career at the very end of the pulp era. He started his career in 52 or 53. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the things that all the older writers told him was, Not that you were ever going to be able to write a novel, but that you wanted a franchise. You wanted some set of stories that you – Lester Del Rey had his uh, Gallagher stories, comic robot stories. Uh, uh, Obviously, Simak had the city city stories. So it could very well be that a lot of these writers were thinking, this is a way of continuing to sell stories. You build up a readership. Mm -hmm. You do what you can to build up a following in a world in which you're not allowed to publish novels. Sure. Which is I, essentially I, what the 30s and 40s was. I mean, the Fawford and the Grey Mouser. Yes. And, uh, and also where you, I mean, because you didn't have, well, it depends on the author, but when you didn't have the opportunity to sell novels readily, it gave you a chance to rehearse that skill or maybe mm-hmm. to get a book without ever developing that skill. I mean, I think you could argue with some success that Liber, for example, was a much more successful short story writer artistically than he was a novelist. I think so. I agree with that. You know, I mean, he had a couple mm. of exceptions, a couple of very good books, but by and large, you know, I think that, that stands. And even the, you know, the longer, later Thafford stuff, because it wasn't, was, it, was it the Knight and thing, Knight Knave of Swords or something that was actually a novel? There was one of them that's actually a novel. One of them was written as a novel, yeah, but the, the, the last great story, I think, was probably Ilmet and Lankmar. Mm. Um, but when he tried to sit down and write a separate novel, a science fiction novel like The Wanderer, it was not that successful. It's not that interesting, and I don't think very many Fritz Leiber... Well, you obviously edited the uh, yeah. best of Fritz Leiber with Charles, and I think that, if I'm not mistaken, most of the Leiber fans, of which I count myself one, don't consider The Wanderer a major work, even though it no. was clearly conceived of and thought of as a very ambitious attempt at writing a novel as a novel. I think so. I think, I mean, if you said to me, you know, highlight the great achievements of his career, most of them would be short fiction or short fiction related. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Okay, let, let's let's sort of parse it around a little bit differently. So if we set okay. aside the economic slash career, um, per, you know, um, motivation for creating a a, a fix up, a serial novel, a story suite, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. what are the artistic benefits? Are there artistic benefits to it as a form? Um, I. I uh, go ahead. I, okay, I suspect that there are. Because, I mean, okay, let's take a step back. I mean, whether or not we would view Asimov as one of the great artists of the field, mm-hmm. by approaching Foundation as a series of novelettes and novellas, what he gets to do is not have to braid a single narrative across a vast period of time. He gets to visit changing pieces of it, giving you intense examples, without ever having to create all the filler, I guess, that goes through it. Uh, and it gets to lay it up such times you can see the changes. You can, you, yeah, it, it, it's, it's like getting the history of Rome, but getting, here's an event 700 years ago. Here's an event 680 years ago that seems relevant. Here's another one 300 years ago. And you get to see that big, broad spe- you know, picture. And I'm not sure that a novel actually would allow you to do exactly the same thing as well as, as it does for Foundation. Uh, and I know lots of people will argue, but I mean, I look at something like, and I've got 
admiration in many ways for the, for, for the example I'm about to give. But look at something like, say, Peter Hamilton. Now, he's not mm. doing the same time sprawl, but he wrote these enormous great books which sprawl across their, 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 their canvas. What um, Asimov did with Foundation is do these short little intense sketches rather than great big panoramic scenes, but they build the same kind of sense of scale and scope. So it gives you that I think that's one of, yeah. Uh, I think it's one of the things that science fiction can do very well is to imply a vast history that's not described. Uh, Asimov, uh, when I tried to teach the foundation, uh, just, just the original foundation to, to, to a group of undergraduate students, a couple of students pointed out to me, there, nothing happens in these books, you know. There's no adventure. Nobody's chasing anybody. <laughs> there are no space battles. This is, a, this is a series of, for science fiction readers, it's almost a litmus test for science fiction readers. Very powerful, like this is what science fiction is all about. It's a classic sense of wonder, and yet it's mostly people sitting around in a room talking about whether sure. or not these predictions came true. Sure. Um, but in, in, in a sense, Fritz Leiber did the same thing with the big time, which is essentially a play. It's essentially a, it's, it's a one-room play with people talking about this massive mm-hmm. time war that's going on out there. So science fiction is very good at doing that. I think Asimov, who acknowledged how much he was borrowing from Edward Gibbon, um, realized that if he didn't write the episodic structure that he was writing, he would be stuck writing a really long and boring novel. Because uh, <laughs> he, he was writing about politics and uh, technology and so forth. Uh, there was a phrase that I think the English critic Patrick, Patrick Perrinder came up with, which I've always been fond of. He called stories like this epic fables. Yeah. In other words, a single story... Uh, which can be bizarre, and then you read another one and you start piecing together a vast future history, but you're not getting a whole history. Uh, if you look at the first 10 or 12 Cordwainer Smith stories that were published, mm-hmm. um, they, were, they were like scattered all over this 40,000-year future history had worked out, and you could only begin to get glimpses of them. And the more you read, the more you oh, this happened thousands of years before that, and, and eventually you begin to realize he has this epic vision. Sure. Uh, and a lot of readers I know at the time were looking forward to novels like Nostralia. Nostralia didn't give you the epic vision. No. I think what makes these things effective is that you don't get the whole story. Yes, they, they, they basically the, they take you up to the edge and let you fill the, the gaps in yourself. Exactly, and that's, that's what I think is the appeal to science fiction readers who are stone science fiction readers, mm-hmm. is that we want to be able to make connect those dots by ourselves. True, um, I think that's true. Uh, but I also think... Okay, there's that ability to take out little pieces of, of a history, and I, I wouldn't mistake the, the story suite or the fix-up as being a sole way of approaching mm. something like the future history, though it's obviously one way of doing a future history. Then you also have this thing where you get artistic resonance, where you get thematic similarities between pieces which build to hopefully a greater whole, which is obviously mm. the Pavan thing. You know, we're sketching out, we're giving you bits of the alternate history here, along with character and setting, and the same again and again and again to build to a greater picture. So I think, it, I mean, I think what it does is it gives you a different effect. And I think well, it, it, that makes it yeah. a, a really valid kind of a thing. Well, another example that could go along with Pavan is a canticle for Leibowitz. Sure. Uh, I mean, essentially you have three novellas, yeah. uh, which uh, the first of which seemed very powerful at the time, and I... Um, I've been told this. I wasn't uh, as as, as old as I might be. I don't think I was quite old enough. 
I did not read A Canticle for Leibowitz when it first appeared, I believe, in fantasy and science fiction, as a novella, which everybody thought was just a terrific novella, and I don't think anybody at that point knew that these other two pieces were going to come along later and turn it into a novel. Um, and yet, the novel is, in many ways, much more powerful than the, the first... Actually, it's, I think it's enormously more powerful than that first section by itself. Yeah. No, I think it is. Um... <clears throat> Yes, very much so. And a, a, a counterexample, also from sure. fantasy and science fiction, which is not a fix-up, would be Daniel Key's Flowers for Algernon, a terrifically powerful short story, maybe one of the most powerful short stories in science fiction, that, in my mind, didn't really gain any power when he turned it into a novel. But that's expanding a story into a novel, which I understand is not the same thing as a fix-up. No. no, it's a completely different kind of a thing, really. Uh, I mean, I guess mm -hmm. it does involve adding extra material, but generally, though not exclusively, by if you like puffing events up, by adding more mm. detail here and here and here to flesh it out. Adding uh, a subplot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, which does happen. Um, I guess here, here's a question. Why does fix-up have to be a, if not a derogatory term, a, a problematic term? You know, a lot of writers don't really like having their work referred to as a fix-up. And then, as sometimes happens on the Cood Street podcast, technology failed us. Skype dropped out. My internet connection died. Who knows? But suddenly Gary was talking to air, and so was I. Nonetheless, we're back, after what can best be called a technical segue, to ask why Oh Gary, Gary, Gary is... Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> um, I have no idea what I'm doing now. Aren't you listening? I'm listening to you, yes. I'm just trying to figure out, am I recording now or not? Uh, I don't know. Okay. No, never mind. I, I, I just, okay. So, Gary, why do some people look on the term fix-up as being problematic? Why are they unhappy with it? I go back to Jim Gunn's response to, to Clute going back some time ago. I think uh, that some writers feel it's disrespectful, okay. that uh, either they haven't got the chops to write a novel or they're too lazy to write a novel, um, and that, uh, in, in effect, it's a magazine writer's uh, answer to the novel market. Uh, I think Jim was specifically concerned about a novel, about a fix-up of his own called Stations in Space. Yep. Uh, which uh, was uh, three or four stories he'd written about uh, very near-future space travel. Yeah. Uh, and one of which was, I think, I forget the title of the story, one of which was very powerful. And I think that he felt that those stories, again... He had this whole novel in mind when he was publishing the stories. And why should you call it a fix-up if, in my mind, at the beginning, I had a novel you know, sure. off in the offing? And I guess uh, the, the part of the answer has to be because somebody preempted you, created this idea, admitted that it was, or described it themselves as a fix-up, and vote back in the early 40s uh, or late 40s, uh, and the people look to see how things match together and are similar. You know, the fix-up is a thing we know in the field. Uh, yeah, I think th as a historical term, it's a very useful kind of thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting what gets labeled a fix-up and what doesn't get labeled a fix-up. If you if you more or less keep your short stories intact and write write some bridge material between them, you can come up with the Martian Chronicles. Yeah, uh, which some people, I, I, especially non-science fiction people in the mainstream, still refer to the Martian Chronicles as a novel. Yeah, and of course it's not. Uh, 
But it's not really a collection of stories either because there's bridge material written in between. As I recall, Clifford Simak wrote some bridge material in uh, mm-hmm. City as well. Uh, and, and in fact, you could argue that that's typical of the form, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, there will be some additional material created, whether it's an extra story or two to round out the actual um, body of stuff, uh, or whether it's somewhere else. You know, I think this is... I think it's from, it was a story suite from the mono myth of the hero and the quest, I think it was. Uh, I believe so. I believe so, yeah. I'm getting old, Gary. All this stuff blends. I know. All this stuff is going way back. But uh, I, I still think that's different from an expansion. Again, an, another question that came up um, about Theodore Sturgeon was, mm-hmm. was more than human. He had published Baby is Three as a novella. Um, and then he wrote, essentially, two more novellas. But he wrote them... As a novel, he wrote yeah. this as a three-episode novel. The fact that the first third of that had been published more or less intact as a novella, does that make that a fix-up? No. I don't think so at all. I think it's, um, again, any number of writers, for a, a, as long as there's been a market for short stories, I think people have floated novel ideas as short stories. Um, I guess I think if, I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken, J.D. Salinger's, uh, Franny and Zooey was published in the New Yorker separately as Franny and then Zooey. <laughs> are we then bouncing up against a simple thing that the reason that it's sometimes derogatory as well is because there are just some people who don't want to read short fiction and they see it as another way of having to read short fiction or it doesn't give them the same hit as a novel, you know? You're not going I to, wonder. Yeah. No, I, I, I wonder if that's... There's a suspicion on the part, possibly, a suspicion on the part of some readers that you're being tricked into reading a bunch of short stories and you really want a novel. Uh, because you can sell short stories, or you can put together your short stories, which, again, going back to what AJ told me about writers in the 40s and 50s, you didn't make you didn't make very much money off these short stories when you published them mm. in Fantastic Universe, and now you've got a chance to put some together and make more money off of them. As a practical matter, of course you're going to do that. Oh, look, yeah. I mean, I, I also think uh, many years ago when I was publishing stuff, I commissioned a book from Terry Dowling, right? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, this science fiction stuff you're doing for the moment, let's not do that. I want, I want you to do me a horror book. I want, I want a collection of short stories. And I said, the first thing is I don't want them to be related to one another. And I don't want any, any interstitial material or anything like that. I just want batch of new stories. You know, absolutely, positively, yes. Mm-hmm. And he came back to me four months later with a 65,000-word manuscript for a book called Blackwater Days, um, which was eight, I seem to recall, or seven interlinked stories with interstitial material. Uh, and it was a, a definite story suite because mm-hmm. what you had was you had common characters repeated in each of the stories, pretty much. You had common locations with the interstitial material. It deliberately f- formed it into a greater whole than any one of the stories. And most of the stories, probably five of the seven, appeared separately and went on to win awards and end up in year's bests and all that kind of a mm-hmm. thing. So, I mean, he was doing that thing where you, I guess, um, oh, I guess, you know, you exploit the market a little bit or you build the market up. Um, but I think still remains perfectly valid. I think it's a legitimate kind of thing to do yeah. entirely, and it's uh, uh, it, 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 it's it's never been that uncommon. And uh, if somebody wants to, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm trying. When you were talking, I thought of another example, which is now flitted out of my mind as things increasingly do these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
of 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 writers who essentially were were, were doing that, were putting together a group of stories and then um, publishing them in some form that sometimes may not have some of the stories may have been unpublished. Maybe all of them were unpublished. Yes. Maybe this maybe a section of the novel consisted of stories. Another example that comes to mind is Christopher Priest's The Islanders. Yes. Um, now clearly this is part of a series of novels and stories that he's been writing his entire career. Yep. The Islanders itself, I don't know if any of these pieces were published separately. I didn't check. But some of them are clearly standalone stories, some of them are fragments, some of them are connective tissue. Mm-hmm. Uh together I believe it's a novel. I believe it's actually a very good novel. Uh and part of the structure that you're allowed to experiment with in novels these days is a very episodic structure uh, where you can put together disparate elements and have them sort of uh, yep. work together musically. I, I always thought that in Keith Roberts' Pavan, that was part of the meaning of the title. Was that he yes, wanted I think it is. Yeah. You absolutely understand how these different fragments work together and, and counterpointed each other. Sure. Um, I, think, I think the term fix-up probably came about uh, mostly in terms of uh, what was happening very largely in the late 40s and early 50s, where you did had, have people who were just, let's find a bunch of stories you've written that are sort of linked together and knit them together in some way. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it, it applies quite as much today, where we're science fiction readers, I think, are a little bit more sophisticated about what they expect from a novel. Sure. And yet, and yet the novel form is fluid enough that it can consist very easily of fragmentary sure, pieces. Sure. And I guess you've got to sit there and go, if, if writers like, like Dashiell Hammett and William Faulkner and Chuck Palahniuk can do fix-ups, mm. then why is it a bad thing? And, and we don't walk away. Obviously, the field hasn't walked away from it at all. I mean, for all this discussion about this issue of form and terminology, and we may ultimately even get back, back to talking about how the field forms terms, mm-hmm. um, we, we continue to do it in the same way. I mean, surely a book like Accelerando by Charlie Stross, is structurally, in many ways, exactly the same kind of book as Foundation. Actually, it is, yeah. And it's the same kind of gaps between the segments. Yes. Um, and and, and I, I see nothing wrong with that, and I see nothing wrong with having published bits of it separately, because there is a there's an architectural design there that doesn't look like a fix-up. And this goes back to your question about why people find it a denigrating term. Hmm. Fix-up sounds exactly like... It's like something you do with a... R- rattle trap house. You know, you're going to get a hammer and nails. I, I'm going to. Yes. You know, I'm just going to put this roof over here, and I'll. Uh, I'll do that. I, I think it does sound it's like a, a demeaning term. It sounds like a Rube Goldberg contraption, doesn't it? Not an artistic choice. Well, you know what that raises, though. It raises the question of, and you started to get into this as to where science fiction gets its uh, critical terminology from, mm-hmm. because uh, one of the questions uh, that. Uh, has come up uh, somebody now. Where was this? Was this? Where did I read this on the on, on, on the web within the last week? We don't have a critical vocabulary for hard science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no, it, it came up. I know where it came up with. It came up uh, as a question, a proposal for a panel at ReaderCon, and 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 the argument, which I don't entirely agree with, is that the inherited critical vocabulary we have can't really deal with space opera or hard science fiction. There's some truth to that, but. I don't know which vocabulary this person was talking about, because we have a whole vocabulary that evolved out of professional writers, and fix-up is one of them. Fix-up is a a professional writer's term. Yes. Uh, We have a set of terms that evolved from fandom, I suppose. Uh, Space opera is one. 
you have another set of terms that probably evolved from writers' workshops, like I don't know the kitchen sink story from Damon Knight. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, and then you have you have sort of literary academic uh, terms uh, that, and all, all, so you've got four or five sets of vocabularies that sort of get and, mixed together stew when you're talking about science fiction. And don't forget about the forget the um, the uh, fanzine kind of origin either. You know, f- you know, fan discussion. Uh, you know, from from whence comes I believe space opera, and from whence comes mm-hmm. sword and sorcery. Yeah, because I mean it was in a fanzine, was it not, that uh, Leiber coined the term. Uh, it was in the fanzine that uh, um, uh, who was it that coined? The, okay, Wilson Tucker coined yeah. the term space opera as well. Yes. Yeah. So right. the the first the first two critical vocabularies that emerged were the ones uh, from the fans, from the letter columns and the fanzines, and the ones that uh, you know evolved from the writers themselves, and yes. some that evolved from people like Campbell, a few editors. Yeah. Um, but today, for example, we consider one of the, I think it's a lot of people who read, we haven't even talked about fantasy, but let's use fantasy and science fiction together for a minute. Mm-hmm. A term you hear a lot about is world building. Yes. If you go into, I don't know, the Harcourt or the Harper Dictionary of Literary Terms, <laughs> it ain't going to be there. This is a term that comes entirely from the readership of science fiction and fantasy. And there are chunks of readers, large swaths of readers, for whom world building is as important as plot. Yes, it's true. Uh, so, uh, and, and I, I guess you know, even to add a, a fifth or sixth um, source for vocabulary, you're getting the vocabulary of gamers working its way into science fiction and fantasy now as well. And, and, and that shouldn't and, be surprising. And probably, probably, if you look at subtly uh, from uh, graphic novels and comics as well, because you know the mm-hmm. crossover between. If you like, okay, one thing that has happened very much, and I'm sure it was in place before, in the last 10, 15 years I've noticed, is the range of creative options open to a science fiction creator has broadened mm-hmm. and fantasy creator. Suddenly, science fiction fantasy writers are commonly writing graphic novels and comics. They're commonly getting involved with scripts and screenplays and whatever else. And so you get that mix and repurposing of terminology coming through as part of the natural evolution of things as the experiences of, of writers broaden, mm-hmm. I, I, I imagine, without coming up with any useful example for you. Well, I can't come up with examples, but I remember talking to people who, uh, a, a lot of people who have moved into the graphic novel. Well, okay, a, a good example is, is, is Chris Roperson, uh, mm. who's, who's some very good science fiction and some very good comic books, and he's gotten into Superman and so forth. And I remember talking to him not long after he got into that, and he was he was delighted because there was this almost this whole new creative world that was open to him. Sure. But it kind of involved thinking of things in a different way. And if Chris yeah. is, if I'm wrong about that, he can correct me. But, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, uh, I remember I'm talking to Peter Straub when he and his friend Michael Easton were working on their first graphic yep. novel. There was a whole new way of thinking about narrative that they had to keep in mind. Um, and I don't think this is a bad sign at all. But in terms of talking about science fiction and fantasy, it, it just makes it more and more confusing. <laughs> and, of course, some of this stuff is generated because, I guess, if you go back far enough, we felt we had to talk about science fiction ourselves because no one was going to talk about it for us. And we had to make up some of our own terms to talk about it because you couldn't find them out there. Mm. Uh, and, and also, in fairness as well, the people who were creating these terms weren't, how would one put it, they weren't casual participants. I mean, when I think it was Heinlein was speculative fiction, wasn't it? Heinlein, as far as I know, yeah. Yeah. As as, as far as I could tell, the term was first proposed publicly, I think at the 1940 Worldcon, 
in a speech yeah. that Heinlein gave. So, so if Heinlein uh, is claiming speculative fiction, if Leiber is coining swords and sorcery, if mm-hmm. Wilson Tucker is coining space opera, I mean, these are these people are really actively, fundamentally involved in creating the fabric of the field as well. So they're obviously trying to work out the language to use to discuss the thing they're attempting to create. Right, and 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 I think what they're doing is I think there are two kinds of language. There's there's the language that tries to describe what we're already doing. I mean, the term space opera, as Wilson Tucker used it, was very denigrating. Yes, it was. Uh, Tired, tired, worn out, uh, you know, full of cliches. And no, so dude, you're, you're talking about the hacking, grinding space opera, I do believe. I believe the words hacking and grinding appeared in the original. I think they, I think they were in his original, uh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say his original post. Isn't that weird? We're talking about fans <laughs> and the articles as posts. Oh, don't were. do that. Do not do that. The old, the old fans will come for you in the nighttime. They'll send these these ninjas on Zimmer frames who will creakily drop down from the, the ceiling and kill you. It's simply referring. It's, it's simply reflecting a world in which you could do your posts, but you had to hectograph them. <laughs> I'm just suddenly picturing the, this this stealth ninja with a little um, propeller That's beanie right. on, you know, little old guy, but still coming down from the ceiling, saying, "Kill you for using that term." Don't call my book space opera. <laughs> Scum. Ah, <laughs> oh, the field was never this much fun. Um. Actually, David Hartwell did a, uh, his introduction to that massive space opera anthology. Had a fascinating history of how the term had been used, starting mm-hmm. out as a demigrating term, and then I think, as I recall, as David argued, uh, sometime in the seventies, when Brian Aldiss put together a, a, a series of anthologies called Space Opera, mm. it became a celebratory term. It became something we wanted to do, and then, and then you began to get the the Mike Harrison. A sort of reconsideration of what space opera could do, and eventually you get the new space opera. Uh, but the point is, the new space opera, uh, because I have friends who uh, or, or enter the science fiction world from the world of literary studies, and they're confronted with a bizarre panoply of words that they've <laughs> never heard before. Oh, and, 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 and can we just take an aside to just turn around and wave a Cood Street admonitory finger at our friend and colleague, well, your colleague, because you're more skilled than I am, not mine, uh, John Clute, who seems to coin terms as naturally as rain falls from the sky. He loves doing that, and sometimes they catch on, and sometimes they don't. You know, it's um, like he's a bad meal, and suddenly there's like four more critical terms. <laughs> I can't keep Well, up. I mean, there's, there's a reason he did that. I mean, I, I think if you um, go back and... He, he comes up with a, a number of terms in the original... Uh, science fiction encyclopedia, and he's still coming up with new terms in the new online edition. Uh, more often than not, those are terms to describe something or some movement or some choreography or some structure for which there isn't a traditional term. Um, well, yeah, see, see, the, the, you, you are now po- you know, sort of making me feel skeptical. Uh, mm. Just yesterday I saw Caitlin Kiernan. De- 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 deriving, deriding the evolution of language online and some of the things which are um, said and how people abbreviate things. And I wonder if, if, if one could look at some of the things that, that, that John is coining terms for and realize that there are other perfectly adequate terms in place that we could use that we're choosing not to, possibly because we're using our special science fiction beans. Well, uh, I think part of it was trying to get away from that. I mean, keep in mind, John... His his book on horror is entirely a glossary. Yes, I mean his his book on horror is entirely a set of definitions which he assigns to terms which he finds useful, and what you do when you go through this and I, John enjoys doing this for reasons that are 
best explained by John at some point. Uh, you, you, you can you can you can suss out an elaborate theory of horror by reading through those definitions and sure. connecting the dots yourselves. Just as in the Encyclopedia of Fantasy, much more so than in the original Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, you can suss out a very sophisticated and provocative and intelligent theory of fantasy. But you have to do it by looking at this word and that word and then yep. connecting them and figuring out what he's building up. Um, it's a it's it's there's a kind of gamesmanship in that I think. It's kind of um, fun, but also begins to make your your head hurt. What's an armamentarium, Harry? Uh, a what? An armamentarium. Uh, I don't know, but I, uh, I I can tell you what fantastic is. Yes, it's a convenient shorthand term employed and promoted by John Clute to describe the armamentarium of the fantastic in literature. Well, there you go. And, and if that didn't make things closer or clearer, I don't know what did. An armamentarium, it seems to me, is, 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 is a big gray building that you go into to get your weapons during the zombie apocalypse, and, 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 and you just want to make sure that you have hatchets and shotguns and bludgeons and pistols. Oh, I'm glad he's cleverer than I am. Well, people have always done that. If you go back and read some of the terms, if you go back and read Damon Knight's In Search of Wonder, he's, he's throwing out... Some terms which I thought were wonderfully useful terms, like the kitchen sink story, yes. uh, like the idiot plot, uh, and a plot that only works as long as everybody in it behaves like an idiot. Uh, <laughs> I actually and, just and, bought a copy last year. Oh, really? Uh, bought it at the World other Fans, thing, which yeah. is, uh, I think those things are wonderful, and, and they're energetic, and what they're doing is trying to come up with terms, some of which are kind of writer's workshop terms, which gets back to the... Uh, Turkey City lexicon, that sort of thing. Ah, yes, yes, yes. A whole set of, a whole set of terminology that evolved through writers' workshops. Yes. You know, through, uh, through things like uh, Clarion and, uh, and Milford and so forth, where you're trying to explain to young writers what not to do. The, uh, I mean, a very useful story, a very useful term is, as you know, Bob. Um, well, no, absolutely. I mean, I remember quite clearly uh, the first time I encountered the lexicon. Back when I was editing Eidolon, and first you're going, this is just going to be some sort of clever thing, right? And then you're going mm-hmm. through, yeah, I've seen that, and I've seen that, and I've seen that. Yeah. It's very perceptive uh, and useful. Well, and the interesting thing about it is that, uh, and it's still online somewhere, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Bruce Sterling originally put it online, um, that while these were uh, admonitory uh, criticisms of young writers, who should avoid this sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Or they should avoid the brand name Irish or whatever they call it. You know, where the, the 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 old notion, which actually Stephen King once endorsed, that if you can't, if you get stuck in a story, open the refrigerator and just type in the brand names. <laughs> um, that in fact, even though these were admonitory terms for beginning writers, you see this sort of thing all the time in published fiction, in bestseller <laughs> fiction, um, and it does become a very helpful way of uh, of of, of uh, Thinking about these things, yes, uh, and not not just in terms of science fiction and fantasy either. Um, steampunk, manor punk, uh, fantasy of manners—all these were thought up mostly by writers, some of who wanted to position themselves in a different place, mm-hmm. um, some of whom maybe wanted to create a movement. Uh, I mean, the sense I get—I've read several times the K.W. Jeter letter to Locus in which he proposed steampunk. Yes. Yeah. And it was clear that he wanted to give an identity, a generic identity, yeah. somewhere between science fiction and fantasy to himself and Blaylock and Powers. Okay. And I can't, you can't blame him for that. Everybody wants to kind of create a kind of franchise label. 
They do. I mean, sometimes the, the terms sound infelicitous is the word I'll use. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm, in this instance, I'm, what I'm thinking about is say fan cast at the Hugos. Fan cast is just you're throwing fans around or something. You know, yeah, you know we well, should do. Yeah, you know we should do. Gary, I'm gonna interject on my interjection, so, but mm-hmm. maybe we should coin our own term for something. For something? In, in well, field, I mean, we should just come up with something and you know, coin it. Podcast? I don't know. I, I, I never, podcast <laughs> to be the podcast. I mean, the original podcast. You know what the original podcast was? It was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Because they cast all these pods all over people's basements. <laughs> you see, I was really sure for a second there you were going to say it was Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. That could be that, too. <laughs> oh, but... Just for a second. Um, no, I mean, actually, Fancast is a particularly good example in my, in my mind of a bad piece of terminology because it replaces a perfectly good one with an unnecessary yes. variation. You know? And perhaps that's... Well, that, I think this is... I, I think there is something that happens in fandom because this has been such a part of fandom for 70 or 80 years now yeah. that it, it becomes almost a mark of distinction if you can invent a term that catches on. Sure. Uh, the problem is a lot of them don't catch on. That's because a lot of them are. I mean, I would like to see... Uh, this is something I'm not, I'm not prepared to do. I'm not uh, nearly knowledgeable enough to do it, but somebody who's been around for a long time, somebody, I don't know, like uh, Fra- Frank Robinson, perhaps. I would love to see a dictionary of failed fan terms. <laughs> of things that were suggested over the years that just never went anywhere. I, I will say and that I- whilst I would love to see one, Gary, I'd hate to work on one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That uh, said, you couldn't help but drop a few in, could you? You know, just see if anyone noticed. No. You, you, the other thing is to find out, the, the other quiz, we could put together a quiz like this, except it's too much work. Which of these terms have actually been suggested during the history of science fiction and fandom, and which are we just making up right now? Absolutely. Uh, and I bet nine, 9 out of 10 would say fancast. You just made that up. Yeah, fan, fancast, actually. It shows up on the Hugo ballot, doesn't it? Actually, you know what we could do? We could. Oh, this begins to sound like I'm just taking the mickey out of someone I respect. I was going to say, we could commission John Clute to come up with some terms for us. And then we could drop them in, because he could come up with ones that sounded really convincing. This is. This reminds me of, uh, of of a popular radio show in, in in the UK, which our friends there will have to remind me of, um, which we did a version of at the Glasgow uh, Worldcon a few mm-hmm. years ago, involved coming up with words which may or may not have a real meaning, and then uh, the panelists try to guess the meaning. It's actually the old uh, kids' game called Dictionary, done in a more sophisticated mm-hmm. way, and. And one of the things, and Clute was on that panel, as a matter of fact, as I recall. Uh, and one of the things that was absolutely fascinating is that people kept thinking, uh, is, this, is, this a, is this a real word? Is this a joke word? Or is this a Clute word? Uh, <laughs> most people couldn't tell the difference. Um, I'm, I'm sure I would struggle, frankly. I know John has, in fact, cl- uh, coined batches of terms that I've, that I've never even seen. So, yes, I would be on surprise. I have to say, I've got a fondness for terms like polder and, and wainscot and things like that. Uh, so, uh, the, the, I've, I've known John long enough, I've been reading his use of the terms yeah. long enough that they, they do internalize a little bit. But, but yeah, when somebody tries to ask me to explain it, I kind of want to point, point to John and say, let him explain it. Because it's not yeah. immediately evident. But John's terms are not fan terms. John's terms are unique. They are a brilliant critic Inventing yes, no, terminology 
I know. So, and, and, and some of the other things of, um, I mean, I wish I could think of examples. Maybe people can send in examples of just really unsuccessful terms that fans had come up with over the years to describe different kinds of fiction. That'd be fun. Um, That'd be fun. Yeah. In, in, in the meantime, I'm going to do some little shout-out-y kind of a things, and then we'll see if there's anything else we can think up to round okay, out our, our 60 minutes. First of all, I, I do want to say, if you've not read Pavan, the old Earth Books edition with the lovely Leanne Diane Dillon cover, people should check it out. I remember exhorting Mike uh, Walsh at Old Earth when he was doing it to, to reuse the Dillon cover, uh, and he did you know, from the original Ace. Ace that looks lovely. And our pal Neil, we, we can call him that, our pal Neil, our pal Neil has a audiobook th- lineup, and they've just done an audiobook of Pavan as well. So it's entirely possible to encounter it as an audiobook and a book at the same time. And this is a book which is on the risk of being forgotten, so save it and go off and read it and talk about it and experience it. Now that I think about it, there's a book club thing I'm going to do later in the year, and I probably should have picked Pavan rather mm. than the book I pick, but hey, we do that. Also, a shout-out to another friend of the podcast. We haven't done this one before, Gary. You're going to have, fairly soon, you know how we start off with a weather forecast? We'll do a quick quip around the centenarian, you know, this week's centenarians in the field like they used to do on the Today Show. But happy birthday to Peter Straub, who I think had a birthday this week. I believe it's, well, it's it's today where you are and it's tomorrow where I am, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's March 3rd. Well, Happy birthday to a good friend of the podcast. We hope you have a wonderful, wine-filled, joy-filled, family-filled day to celebrate. Is that? And I don't have the exact time, but I mean, as long as we're looking at, uh, because I just finished working on a piece on, on, on Kit Reed, who's a good friend, and I don't know if she'd want me to mention this or not, but it's public knowledge. She's going to turn 80 this year. She's been writing science fiction and fantasy and various things in between yep. since 1958. She wrote for New Worlds under Moorcock. She's wow. been... She is part of the history of the field. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to her. And happy birthday eventually. And I should have looked up her actual birthday, but it's sometime. Actually, it's sometime in, 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 in this year. So yeah. Actually, actually to, ins- to insert extra added rambling, uh, I have to say that I'm going to go back and start pulling out new worlds and finding them. I want to find an interview with Moorcock that's apparently in there somewhere because there's reference made on a mailing list that we're both on to apparently more mm-hmm. referring to De- Samuel Delaney as illiterate, which I find an absolutely astounding claim. You mentioned that before, and I wonder where that came from, but I, I'm thinking that uh, one right. of the things... Okay, speaking of anniversaries, yeah. uh, this year is also the 50th anniversary of Samuel R. Delaney's first novel. Really? Well, well... 1962, Ace Double's City of... Uh, what was it called? Jewels, no, not the Jewels of... No, it was one of the city trilogy, the fall of the cities, and yeah. there were three of them, yeah. and I'm blanking on that. Uh, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, Chip Delaney will turn 70 this year as well. I think that sounds plausible to me. So, yes. And as long as we're, yeah, and, and it's the 100th anniversary of <laughs> Princess of Mars. Let's keep going for this. Okay, let's wind that little gram. Okay, we'll up. wind down. <laughs> well, since we are sort of ish towards the, the latter part, part of the podcast. It's harder to judge because we had our little interruption there where um, yes. we, we had to start over. Um, what else has been happening in your science fictional world, Gary? Um, outside of having, I mentioned this last week, I believe, outside of having read what I think is the major novel of Terry Besson's career, mm-hmm. um, I've been reading a lot of short fiction. Uh, I'm reading... Uh, it, it's interesting, in a coincidence, a couple of weeks ago... Um, mm-hmm. Our friend, 
Barry Malzberg was asked by you who he thought uh, among modern science fiction writers represented what he thought of as the, the best of the field as he knew mm-hmm. it. Uh, and he mentioned Nancy Kress, and she's got a new novel out from Tachyon and a new collection coming out from Small Bear. There you go. This is, must be the commercial kind of, the, you know, the, the name placement part of the podcast. Oh, oh, if we're yeah, going to do that. This is our commercial. Yeah. Well, if we're going to do, do an ad for Small Beer, first of all, Kelly Link and Gavin Grant are right now where, Gary? In Australia, I believe. They're at the Adelaide Writers Festival. And um, I, I am greatly disappointed that I'm here um, dealing with my ear problems and helping my family when I could be in Adelaide enjoying the company of friends. But later this year, Small Beer have a couple of big things, and they've just announced it publicly, and I haven't heard anyone talk about it yet. In December, Small Beer will publish a two-volume Best of Ursula Le Guin. Excellent. Which will be a very exciting publication and will no doubt give us lots to talk about, uh, given the quality of the body of work in question. You know, it'll be a major thing for every science fiction oh, well, um, to have. Well, my first reaction to that is, how can they get it into two volumes? Uh, well, I'm sure. I, my, I don't know this, but my guess is that Ursula will do the the, the, the selecting uh, of. We'll do the this. selection, like like the like the Gene Wolfe collection. Yes, yes, and, and I'm sure that she will do a, a and spectacular job. Yep. Yes, and mm-hmm. and what? And we're and here in Chicago, we're only two weeks away from our uh, big, nice, wonderful ceremony yes. honoring yes, yes, Gene yes, yes. Wolfe, which we hope we'll be able to talk about on the podcast sometime before or shortly after. Yes, I would hope so. Sometime, sometime in the next couple of weeks. We're yeah, it's, a, it's, it's shaping up to be an interesting year. It is, it is. Uh, are you right. going to the $1,000 a table dinner, Gary? Uh, it's Oh, yes, I'm going to it, and I get a free ticket, too. Wow, that's pretty sweet. You're going to have to wear your good suit, aren't you? I'm going to have to clean it. I'm going to have to have it clean. I'm going to have to have those cat hairs removed from it. <laughs> See, this is like world fantasy where I have to take But at any rate, yeah, that's... Uh, I'm sure it will be brilliant, utterly brilliant. Well, I don't know. I've, I've, I've got to talk to... I have to talk to my sartorial advisors about whether I should actually wear a tux to this thing since I'm master of ceremonies. Yep. Uh, I don't know yet. Yep. I should ask Gene. <laughs> He'll know. He'll know. Someday I'll tell you my Gene Wolfe story, but... <laughs> yeah, right. I will not tell you my Gene Wolfe story now. Um... So let's 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 save that for able to put together a, uh, a Gene Wolf podcast celebrating this. We'll talk. You can share the story then. Yeah, maybe not. We might keep that one private. Okay, offline. I have um, a Gene Wolf story too. I don't share with anybody on the air, but. <laughs> well, all I will say to you though is that one place where we may get to talk about this, in, you know, following on from from the Gene Wolf uh, thing and on the podcast, might be in sunny Toronto. This is your chance, Gary, to promote the event you're a part of. You mean the Toronto World Con and the World yes. Fantasy Con- Convention? Yes, the Toronto <laughs> World Fantasy Convention is this October. And we've been talking about our friend John Clute. Anybody who wants to challenge John on any of his term use of terms should show up at the Toronto World Fantasy Convention where he is a guest of honor. We've also spent some time just a few weeks ago talking with our good friend Elizabeth Hand, yep. who is the other guest is, of honor at the, the Toronto World Fantasy Convention. Amongst so the that whole... should be a lot of fun. And you, your Toastmaster. I'm Toastmaster, and I now understand that you and some other Australian people are going to make the trek. Most of us, yeah. There's, it looks like it I looks hope. like there's excellent. Back. It actually looks like uh, Elisa Krasenstein and I are going to come, uh, travel to t- Toronto via Dubai, which will be an interesting life experience. I would think so. I envy that in a way. 
Yeah. You have a layover in Dubai of something like 24 hours, you told me? Basically, with overnight in Dubai both ways. It's about 10 hours to Dubai and then another 12 hours to Toronto. It means we don't go to the U.S. at all. Um, but you only have one stopover? Yeah. That's amazing. And I've always wanted to go to Dubai, and I've never wanted to go to Dubai for more than 24 hours, so it sounds perfect. <laughs> well, actually, there's a, a five-star hotel in the airport terminal, so we will uh-huh. uh, stay in the airport terminal, believe it or not, though we'll peek outside, I'm sure, and look around. Uh, and that should be great. I mean, you know, to Kirsten as well, just going to float this idea, uh, in honor of John being uh, the guest of honor at World Fantasy, I think she gets some little signs made up that say, real term, made-up term, clute term, and whenever you go to a panel that John's on, you hold them up. Good idea. I think that would go down swimmingly well. It could be a, it, it could be a a, um, a meme, <laughs> which is not a term he made up. No, I know. Earlier this week, I was talking to my my wife Marianne Jablon, former editor, uh, managing editor of Locus, and mm-hmm. she said to me, she said, "I was listening to your podcast," and I said, "That's great," and she said, "It was really interesting," and I said, "Oh, good." And then she said, "You got to this part where you really rambled." That's this part, Gary. Well, this is this is this is. I like to think of this as as, as building up toward an ending. <laughs> uh, the only question is, do we do do, do we stroll or do, or do we pick up pace? I think we'd better stop before we get in more trouble than we're already in. I've got a funny feeling this might be a slightly short one, but that's okay. Next week, okay. we hope to be back with guests, and there'll be some planning. Um, and then there'll be the hundredth podcast, and then we'll probably, I don't know, take up knitting and do something else, or we'll, we'll, do, something. we'll do something exciting and it'll be good. Um, Excellent. Maybe we'll get a, a dead author on. Maybe we'll get a Ouija board. Ah, okay, here's, here's a footnote. One time, uh, there is a Scottish poet. This goes back. This is a very brief thing, but I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to do an audio interview with Hugo Gernsback and see if we could fool people for at least twenty minutes. But when I was at the University of Chicago as an undergraduate, several of us, several professors and myself, had discovered a long-dead Scottish poet named William McGonagall, mm-hmm. who in Scotland is known as the worst poet in the history of Scotland. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and some of us memorized, he, he, would write memo- he would read the shipping news and every shipping disaster, whether he ever heard of the ship or not, he would write a memorial poem about it whenever any celebrity died. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I still remember his... Ode to the Elegy for Lord and Lady Dalhousie, uh, which started out, Alas, Lord, let's see, Lord and Lady Dalhousie are dead at last, which causes people to feel a little downcast. <laughs> it, it, it sort of goes, there's, there's, and, and poetic gems and more poetic gems, and his autobiography are still in print in Dundee. So we scheduled a evening with William McGonagall, and we all did critical papers on him, and I still have mine somewhere. And we've, we ha- hired this aging Scottish actor uh, in a wheelchair uh, to pretend to be McGonagall. And the younger undergraduates, they, they weren't doing their math right. They were figuring, well, could this guy have actually published a book in 1891 and still be here? <laughs> Got away with it for a good half hour. Awesome. But th- th- actually, didn't Macaulay and Newman do something like that with Gernsback at one of the conventions? Did they, they even win a Hugo for it or get nominated for a Hugo for it? It could very well be. Oh, wait a minute. Like Glasgow or somewhere. There was a... Um, well, let me think. The Hugo ceremony, last Hugo ceremony with Ken Scholes and... Yeah. Uh, they were doing a lot of riffs on the name Hugo. Yeah. Hugo. No, yeah, no, yeah. Back. Um, and 
I mean, but I maybe in Glasgow, you may be right. Maybe there was a, a Hugo Gernsback impersonator. I think. Well, no, I'm not sure if there was an impersonator, but I, I know that. Well, I recall hearing that Newman and Macaulay had done a riff on the whole thing. They might have done that. They I may have done that. Of course, we shall talk of Reno no more, Gary, because we don't no. look back fondly. We don't look back on that one too much. No. You know, I mean, uh, you look forward to Chicago, which I won't be at probably, um, and then we all look forward to Toronto. Toronto will be a lot of fun. Chicago, I urge everybody to come to Chicago to see me, and I'll take you out to, I'll show you the good bars and the pubs and awesome. and restaurants and that sort of thing. And I hope the Worldcon will be delightful as well. And hopefully, you know, we might even um, impose on you to try and fly into Toronto a day early or something so we can all relax a little be bit nice. before your onerous toastmastering duties, which obviously you're, you're, with all this consumption of red wine here on the podcast, you've been rehearsing for all year. Your dedication is astounding. I'm, I'm, I'm glad people recognize that this has all been sacri- sacrificial rehearsing on my part. <laughs> Preparation. Oh, maybe on that cheery note, Carrie, we should call it a day. Maybe we could get a Garrett P. Service impersonator. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, like there's that. a thought. Okay, yeah, we should... <laughs> talk to you next week, Gary. Okay, talk to you next week. Have a good week. Bye.